Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn in our Bibles today to Romans chapter 6. These, these things we're going to look at this morning are assuming that you have trusted that good news uh, that's presented there in, in Romans 3 and elsewhere in the scripture, that Jesus Christ died to pay for all of our sins and that uh, through, through faith in him we receive eternal life as a free gift from God, not as something that we earn by our works, but something that God uh, purchased through that sacrifice of Christ and, and which he gives graciously as a gift to us. And, you know, when you, when you proclaim that truth, that eternal life is purely a gift of God, uh, there's always some, some uh, group of people that will come along and say, well, you're, you're telling people, you're encouraging people to sin, you're saying that it's okay for people to sin, it doesn't matter, because Christ paid for it. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that God's Word teaches about grace, grace doesn't teach you to go out and sin more. In fact, grace teaches you to sin less. To say that grace teaches that you can go out and sin more and it doesn't matter is a, a lie against the grace of God. You see, the grace of God, properly understood, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Now, how does it do that? See, the problem is that that person who makes that accusation is looking at the grace of God through a fleshly mind. And the fleshly mind says, oh, if I, if I have liberty, that means I'll go out and do what the fleshly mind wants to do, which is to sin. But God's grace works in the believer in such a way that it, it works opposite to that. And that's why when you look at the people who most understand the grace of God, you don't see that producing worldliness in their life. You see that producing separation and sanctification. Sanctification is uh, a term that's used in the Bible. It means to set apart. And, you know, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to be set apart. We have been set apart as far as our, our position. God has set us apart. But we ought to be set apart from the world in our lifestyle and our actions. So there's a difference. So when somebody looks at the life of the believer, they see there's something different about them. They don't, they don't do everything the rest of the world does. And there's a way that grace works in the believer to do that. Now, unfortunately, what often happens with Christians is there are people that, that get saved by grace through faith. They, they hear the gospel, they believe it, and all of a sudden, they get saved by grace through faith, and then the church they attend begins to teach them how they need to keep whatever that church's list of laws are in order to be sanctified to God. And uh, rather than, than God's grace working in their lives, basically those churches often operate under law. But we want to look today at how does God's grace work in the believer. And this passage here in Romans 6 uh, gives us a, a, a great picture of God's grace and the sanctifying nature of God's grace. Uh, Romans chapter 6, and let's just begin in verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, that, that accusation that people make against the grace of God today was made in Paul's day. And when he asks that question, he's asking it anticipating the objections of people who would make that 
false accusation against the grace of God. When he says, what shall we say then? He, he's saying, what can we conclude from all of this? In fact, when you're here at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, he's just really ended that first portion of the book of Romans that talks about justification by faith. And so he, he asks the rhetorical question, what should we conclude from all this? What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we just continue to sin so that there will be more and more grace? And his answer in verse 2 is, God forbid. And Paul says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now when you move from from passages like what we looked at last time in Romans 3 to here, Romans 6 and and, and 7 and 8, when it talks about the the death of Christ, there's there's a change in the emphasis. In the verses that we looked at last time, the death of Christ was presented as our substitute. He died in our place. And, and see, that's the message really for, for the sinner is Christ died in your place. He died as your substitute on the cross of Calvary. He paid your penalty. But you know that once somebody believes that gospel, the death of Christ takes on a new significance. And the emphasis here in, in a passage like Romans 6 is not Christ's death as a substitute, but rather it's the idea that we are identified with Christ in his death. See, when a believer believes the gospel, when they believe that Christ died for their sins and was buried and rose again, they die with Christ, and they are buried with Christ, and they are risen with Christ. Okay? And so here, when Paul says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If we're dead to sin, how can, how can we go on living in sin? Um, go, uh, go over to the book of Colossians. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, there's a a warning in verse 8 that says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. You have to be careful about these philosophical and and even logical arguments because they, they can tend to stray from the word of God. And Paul warns about that. Um, he says, he again warns uh, those that would, would be susceptible to these kinds of arguments. Philosophy, vain deceit, the tradition of men. He says that, that these things are after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Uh, he says in verse 9, For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality... And power. Verse 11 says, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And verse 13 says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Uh, You see there how he says, you're complete in Christ, and he talks about a circumcision and a baptism there that are a spiritual circumcision and a spiritual baptism. Circumcision, physical circumcision that God gave to Israel was a cutting away of the flesh. And you realize that when you believe the gospel, God made some changes in you, in your makeup and your nature. And one of the things he did was he performed a spiritual circumcision, a cutting away of the flesh that, that really changed who you are. You didn't feel it happen. 
Maybe you did. I don't know. I didn't feel it happen when I got saved. You didn't, probably didn't feel it. You didn't necessarily know it, but God's Word tells you about it. It says you were baptized. And again, that's a spiritual baptism. Um, that's, a, that's an identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, again, you, you see how it describes how that handwriting of ordinances was against us. It was taken out of the way. Verse 15 says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Because of what Christ accomplished, all those ceremonial things of the law, they don't apply to the believer. The, the uh, meat and drink and, and the holy days and new moon, Sabbath days, all things part of the law that God gave to Israel. They don't apply to the believer. Uh, verse 18 says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which the... Bo- which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. And verse 20 is really the the verse I wanted to get to there. It says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Which things indeed have a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. You know, the life of grace is a balance between two extremes. On the one side, you have the kind of legalism that Paul describes here. Touch not, taste not, handle not. And he says, you're dead to that. And on the other side, you have the, you know, the sin and licentiousness and, and that kind of thing. And Paul says, you're dead to that. You're, you're dead to both of those things. What he, what he says, in, in essence, is he takes the believer even up out of the, those rudiments, those basic things of the world. He says, you're dead from the rudiments of the world. Why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? See, the, the grace life is something very different from what often is taught as, as Christian morality, okay? Because often there's a lot of, of legalism that is taught with, with regard to the believer. Let's go back to our text there in Romans 6. So, so we're dead to those rudiments of the world. We're dead to those, those ordinances and things, touch not, taste not, handle not. We're also dead unto sin. Um, Paul says in Romans 6, verse 2, How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? By the way, in that passage in Colossians 2, uh, where we started out, it talked about being dead in trespasses and sins. That's the unbeliever. The unbeliever is dead in trespasses and sins. He's, he's dead to God. And, you know, alive unto that sin. All right? From God's perspective, he's dead in that trespasses and sins. From his perspective, he's alive in it. When you get saved, you become dead to sin and you become alive unto God. Just the opposite. Okay? And, and here he says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Verse 3 talks about that same baptism as Colossians 2. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Uh, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And you see how he identifies the believer with Christ. says, you're dead with him, you're buried with him, you're risen with him. Now, 
In this passage here in Romans 6, there is a, a process that Paul describes that demonstrates how doctrine works in the believer to bring forth fruit. All right? And, and fruit, when you talk about the fruit in the Christian life, fruit is not just not sinning. I think that's how a lot of Christians think of it. They think of, their, you know, if they avoid this sin this week, then some fruit was brought forth in their life. But fruit is so much more than that. Um, you know, that, I mean, that's just getting rid of the, the rot and corruption. That's not actually bringing forth any fruit. You know, fruit are things like, like uh, you know, being able to apply God's word to the details of your life and, and being able to seek God's will. It's going out and sharing the gospel with people, those, those kinds of things. Fruit is really positive action that you would take on the basis of God's word, not just getting rid of sin. Now, you know, if you've got all kinds of sin in your life, it prevents you from bringing forth that fruit. But, but uh, just stopping the sin isn't really the, the fruit at all. But there's a process that Paul describes here. And it's, it's really, as we look at it, it's a, it's a three-step process. You see, what, what legalism does is legalism tries to get change from the outside in right? Legalism says, don't, don't do all these things. Stop doing all these bad things that you're doing. And, and they don't give you anything that changes you on the inside. Uh, a, a poem that I learned long ago uh, about the law, it says, do this and live, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Under the law, God gave him the law and he said, don't do all these things. But they had no provision, no special provision to be able to actually accomplish it. That's why the law condemns. That's why the law can't give life. The law condemns. See, it says, here's the right things you ought to do, and here's the wrong things you ought to not do, and you don't have any way to, to, to actually fulfill it. Okay? But grace equips the believer to actually fulfill some things. And it's a change from the inside out. And... So, so the beginning of this process begins with some things on the inside. In this passage here in Romans 6, over and over again, Paul reminds these Romans of things they ought to know. Right? Verse, verse 3. We're not going to go through it word, word for word here. But you notice verse 3. He says, know ye not? He's saying, don't you know? The implication is they should know these things. He had already told them these things. They should know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. And so he reminds them of that doctrine. Now, that's a doctrine that many people would say, well, it's not, it's not practical. You hear that a lot today. People say, we need less doctrine, we need more practical teaching. Well, this process that Paul describes here begins with doctrine. It doesn't begin with... Pra- See, what they mean by practical teaching is, tell us, do this and don't do that. They mean, teach us some laws. That's what people mean by practical teaching. Doctrine is the most practical thing in the world, but it works, again, it works from the inside out. It doesn't, it, doctrine doesn't just say, I mean, doctrine will teach you to do some things and not do some things, but doctrine isn't just a legalistic thing, do this, don't do that. You see, the doctrine there is when you believe the gospel, you were baptized into Christ's death, you were identified with him in his death. He, he uh, tells them to know some other things. Verse 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You know, that old man, that... that old nature um, that you had, it was crucified with Christ. Again, now is that a practical doctrine? Maybe not on its face. It doesn't give you anything to do. It doesn't tell you do this, don't do that. But Paul reminds them of that. They need to know these things. Uh, You see in verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. 
See, it's important for you to know doctrine. In the Christian life, uh, it, it, will not, it will not operate the way God intends it to operate without some doctrinal basis and doctrinal foundation. Uh, and, and I'll tell you that many of the people who complain about doctrine, the word doctrine has a negative connotation for a lot of people. You know, the word doctrine just means teaching. That's all it means. Uh, I think a lot of times people maybe, maybe confuse the word doctrine with the word dogma, which is a tends to be, uh, um, you know, usually is applied to traditions and, and religions of men. But uh, doctrine just means teaching. Doctrine is what the Christian life operates on. That's why it's important that you read your Bible. That's why it's important that you not just read it. Read, you know, reading is kind of like, the, like maybe the meat and potatoes. Uh, it's the, the staple of, of uh, learning God's Word, but then study, really digging into God's Word and, and learning it and, and searching out those things. You learn doctrine, and that's what's going to allow that Christian life to operate. It's no accident. You take, for instance, even the books that, that many people would consider to be very practical books. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing to rebuke the Corinthians, and it's almost kind of like a dirty laundry list of all the bad things that they were doing, all the wrong things they were doing. But, and, and there's really only one major, I would say really only one major doctrinal issue that Paul addresses in the book of 1 Corinthians. But, you know, I think you could make a big case that the reason the Corinthians had all these other problems with these sins is because they had some things wrong about the resurrection of Christ. And not understanding some things about the resurrection of Christ led them into the, the other kinds of false teachings that were allowing them to, to be involved in all kinds of sin. Okay, so that, that even in a book like that, the, the doctrinal issue really is what comes to the forefront. Uh, so Paul reminds these Romans of these things that they need to know, and that's the first that's the first part of the process that we find here in Romans chapter 6, is you have to know some things. You have to know some things from God's Word. Uh, if all you know from God's Word is that Christ died for all your sins and was buried and rose again the third day, that's a good start. There's a lot more in there for, that God has for you to learn. And specifically here in this passage, what he's reminding them about is about what their position is in Christ. He's reminding them that when they believed the gospel, they were baptized into Christ's death. He's reminding them that as believers, their old man has been crucified with Christ, that they're identified with him in that death. He's reminding them that Christ was raised from the dead, and that death has no more dominion over, over Christ, and that if you're identified with him in his resurrection, death has no more dominion over you. So he's reminding them of these doctrinal things. Now, the next step in the process you find in verse 11. It says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, there's a difference between knowing something and reckoning it. In fact, the word reckon there is the same word that's translated in other places as impute or account. It's the same word that's used that when it talks about God imputing righteousness to those who believe. And it's, a, it's an accounting term. It, it, you know, it, it means really to charge to an account. Uh, when God imputes righteousness to the believer, that, that believer, the moment after they believe, they're no more righteous in themselves than they were the moment before they believed. Right? They, they didn't, you know, by believing, didn't achieve some standard of righteousness. But what God does, based on what Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary, God accounts righteousness to them. He imputes it to them. He reckons it to them. And when God does something like that, 
Remember who God is. Remember God can, can look out at a vast nothingness and say, let there be light, and light springs into existence. Right? God, God can speak and things happen. It says, he calleth the things that are not as though they were. And so when God pronounces that believer as righteous, that means it's true. That believer is righteous. And, and God deals with them and he deals with you on that basis that you are righteous because of what Christ accomplished. Now, we know that as believers, we continue to sin. Uh, again, this process of sanctification is about, you know, gradually uh, seeing, seeing the power of God's grace overcome that power of sin in our lives. But, but we, you know, I mean, you can, you can talk to the most aged, experienced, mature believer, and if they're honest, and if they're a mature believer, they will be honest, um, they'll tell you they still sin, okay? Now, uh, Again, you know, hopefully there's a process and the design is for there to be a process in that believer's life. In fact, in fact, I find often in talking with, with very mature saints that they often as a mature saint have a much greater recognition of their own sinfulness than they did when they were, were, you know, much less mature in the faith. Because, you know, when you first become a believer, there's the things that everybody knows are sin, right? And, and you have those things in your life and it's obvious, it's obvious that it's sin. Okay, but as you grow, you, you come to see sin more as how Paul describes it when he says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, if you use that standard for sin, how much sin do you have in your life? You know, if you, if you use the Ten Commandments as your standard, you know, maybe, maybe you don't have very much, but you probably have enough even under that. But you take the standard of whatsoever is not of faith is sin, how much sin do you have in your, in your life then? See, and that, that mature saint often, they view themselves as much more sinful than they did when they were, when they were, uh, Younger in the faith. Now, on the outside, it looks like they're much less sinful. But, but to them, looking at themselves, it looks like they're much more sinful. Um, the the uh, thing about that righteousness, though, is God imputes it to you. Your, your level of, of sinfulness or obedience isn't the issue in how God views your righteousness because it's based on what Christ accomplished. Okay? And so God imputes it. He accounts it. Now, this verse is not talking about God accounting something of the believer. This verse is talking about the believer accounting something true about themselves. Right? Let, he says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, he'd already reminded them previous in the passage that they already know that they're dead to sin, but there's a difference between knowing something and knowing it theoretically and knowing it even, you know, because it says it in God's word, being able to quote the verse and that kind of thing, and really reckoning it to be true of yourself. When you think of yourself, do you think of yourself the way God sees you, or do you think of yourself just, you know, with a, with a natural mind? Do you think of yourself as righteous before God based on what Christ did on, on Calvary? Think about it this way. If God has declared you to be righteous, who, who are you to contradict God? It, and if God has said that you're dead to sin, and he has, he has made you dead to sin, who are you to contradict God? See, what happens is we look at the, we look at the circumstances around us, and we think about what, what we did yesterday or the day before or whatever, and we say, how could I, how could I be dead to sin? That, that can't be true of me. The Bible says it, I know it, but I can't reckon that to be true because I look at these circumstances. But does God reckon it to be true? See, God reckons you to be dead to sin. And, and he has made you, there was an action of God to take that old man and crucify it with Christ. And so to, to not reckon it really is a lack of faith. 
To not reckon that you're dead to sin is to not believe God's word. And so Paul says, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Paul hasn't, hasn't yet at this point, he hasn't given you anything to, to do as far as, as an action to take. He's only given you things to know, to, to know in your mind, and to believe in your heart. That's re- The reckoning would be a, a, a thing of the heart. Um, to reckon those doctrines that the Bible says are true of you, to really reckon them to be true. The, the third step then, if you, if you think about that, if you, if you really could reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin, could, could, you, could you sin at the same time that you were reckoning yourself to be dead to sin? You couldn't do it, right? Those things that go on on the inside, those things you know and those things you believe, they affect your actions, See, it's not like legalism where it, it just tries to, tries to restrain the action from the outside without changing anything on the inside. This changes everything on the inside, and it can't help but bring about a change on the outside. So what he says is, verse 11 told us to reckon ourselves dead unto sin. Verse 12 says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. If you're dead to it, it can't reign in your body. Do you suppose that there's any temptation you could put in front of a, a corpse, a dead body, that would cause it to respond? A dead body isn't going to respond to sin. And that's what he says, you, that's how you're to reckon yourself to sin. You're dead to it. You're alive unto God, alive unto God through Jesus Christ, but dead to sin. And so verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. And verse 13 says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The, the first step in this process was to know some things. The second, process, the second step was to reckon them to be true. The third step is to yield. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, you see, and yield your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, when you think of the word yield, does, does yield involve more effort or less effort? When you think about yielding, yielding doesn't mean you put more effort in. Yielding means you put less effort in, right? When you're driving down the road and there's a yield sign, you don't hit the gas. You look to see if there's any traffic coming and let them go first, right? Um, Yielding here, you see, he tells you not to yield in one way in verse 13 and to yield in a different way. He says, don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. That that old man that has been, been... judicially put to death in Christ, with Christ, that doesn't mean it doesn't influence you still. It's crucified with him. That doesn't mean it doesn't still have an influence on you and try and pull you in a certain direction. Paul says, don't yield to that. But instead, he says, yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Really, what he's saying is, yield to what you've reckoned to be true. If you reckon yourself to be dead unto sin, then if that's what you, you know and you believe, then... Yield your members to the truth of that so that your members, your body, is going to fulfill what that means, right? He's, he's really saying, I mean, he's yield, saying yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. He's really saying yield to that doctrine that you know and, and that you believe. And you see, that's, that's the process. You see how it's a process that works from the inside out. And it's, it's so, so different from, again, from what, what's often taught. You know that in, in Paul's epistles... And this is true um, pretty in, in most of his epistles, if not all. Uh, 
is that, and especially, it's certainly true of, a, of a, an epistle here like Romans, is that he always begins with doctrine. The practical application comes later. That comes at, at the end. But the doctrine comes first. The, the book of Ephesians, for instance, the first three chapters, for the most part, are doctrinal. The last three chapters are, are much more practical. Here in Romans, uh, you get through the first 11 chapters before you get to any kind of practical, you know, do this, don't do that. Um, you, you know, you have those, those doctrinal truths of justification by faith, these doctrines of sanctification in chapters 6, 7, and 8. You have dispensational issues that are discussed in 9, 10, and 11. And it's not until you get to chapter 12 that then he talks about yielding your, your uh, body as a living sacrifice unto God, and he begins to give you the, the practical instruction. Because, again, the Christian life is not about keeping a, a rule, you know, a list of do's and don'ts. Paul says you shouldn't do that. He says you're, you're dead to those rudiments of the world that say touch not taste not handle not but when sound doctrine works in you there is a a change in action you see this this kind of thing here in Romans 6 and and you know you can continue on into chapter 7 and chapter 8 and and see much more about these issues of, of sanctification but it's doctrine working in the believer. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.